Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome, welcome to it. Welcome to it. The Bible Geek. I'm your host, Robert M. Price. Robert M. Price, host of the Bible Geek. It's amazing from each of the tribes of Israel. And of course, this was a pseudomograph. Uh, he didn't write it. There's the incarnation of God. Right? Why in this specific, just amazing book, the Bible, the Bible Geek. Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, host of the Bible Geek. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Ready for another Bible Geek? I hope so, because I, your Bible Geek, Robert M. Price, am definitely in the mood for it. Uh, uh, just the other day, I was interviewed uh, for a big documentary of international proportions with various New Testament scholars. uh, This is done by uh, Cameron Riley from Australia. I didn't dare do my bad, fake Australian accent uh, with him in the room, but uh, um, it was really good. Uh, They had already interviewed Richard Carrier and uh, Mark Goodacre, and right after me, my pal... uh, Amy Jill Levine was there, hadn't seen her in a few years, and uh, they interviewed a bunch of scholars from Australia, and they got uh, more to come. It should be quite a, I'm I'm suggesting they call it the Jesus Epic, but it's as yet not officially titled. So, um, let's see, and let me just shamelessly plug my uh, book, Holy Fable, The Gospels and Acts Undistorted by Faith. I think you'll find a lot of fascinating stuff in there. Probably even some stuff you uh, hadn't uh, heard on the Bible Geek. And, of course, I'm still going strong with the Human Bible, available to Patreon supporters. Just posted another essay on there called Morality Without God? Question mark. Guess what I think about it. Well... Okay, uh, let's see, uh, J.B. Cranger uh, has corrected a uh, mistake. He says, I was listening to an interview with you on the Free Thought Prophet that was published in September. You claimed that the Dutch were the first to use scalping. According to the History Channel, the first Europeans to use the practice in the U.S. were New Hampshire colonists on February 20th, 1725. However, the piece says it was an Indian practice appropriated by the colonists. I'm sure you're right. I have a suspicion that wherever I heard it, uh, the goal was to exonerate uh, the Indians a bit by saying, well, it was those evil Europeans that told them how to do it. Uh, uh, so I appreciate that correction. I always welcome them. Thank you, JB. Okay, now here's uh, 
another goodie. Uh, I have this is, uh, oh boy, oh yeah, Kelly says this. I have a question about the relationship between Platonism and the fall. I was watching Cosmos and Carl Sagan summarized the view of Pythagoras, Plato, and their followers as one the uh, that uh, rejected experimentation and verifiable knowledge. They believed that pure abstract ideas were real and far superior to practical knowledge and activities. I wonder how much this view influenced the authors of the New Testament. Specifically, Paul states that through one man, sin and death entered into the human race, and therefore the entire race was to be punished. I'm trying to understand why Paul thought that one man's sin required everyone to be punished. Um... Let's see here. Plato believed that the abstract form is the essence of the concrete objects. Your kitchen table's essence is the big table in the sky. Did Paul believe that Adam's essence was the perfect human form above and that he corrupted this essence, which was then transmitted to the whole race through... Uh, progenation, it still seems like a big leap to say that all the progeny had to be punished for one man's sin. This theory also doesn't demonstrate how Jesus could correct the root of the problem. Did he save the world by fixing the corrupted essence in everyone, or just the essence of those who say the sinner's prayer? How did the author of Genesis conceive of the fall since it preceded Plato? It is difficult for me to conceive of something other than a pure essence getting corrupted and transmitting the corruption. Well, uh, a few uh, interesting questions here. Uh, let's see here. Paul, uh, well, let's say uh, that... Um, Paul is uh, represented in 2 Corinthians as apparently rebutting the view of Philo, who was a middle Platonist, also influenced by the Stoics. Uh, uh, Philo did reckon with the notion of uh, a heavenly primal man, and uh, uh, and uh, so he was the the heavenly prototype of uh, the earthly Adam. And, and of course, as uh, any kind of a Platonist, he did believe that everything had its uh, original archetype or form in the rational realm of forms. And uh, so he has the spiritual man first and the physical or natural man second, modeled upon the first, right? Well, in 2 Corinthians no, I, I'm sorry, it's 1 Corinthians. What am I saying here? Uh, he says, um, uh, first came the natural man and then the spiritual, because uh, the, as the first Adam became a life, a living soul, quote from Genesis 2, the last Adam has become a life-giving spirit, that is, as of the resurrection. So it's the, uh, the natural man is first and the spiritual man second. Well, we don't know, but it, it's a pretty good, uh, educated guess that he is trying to rebut uh, the philonic view of the matter, which is interesting because the the notion of Christ as the primordial man, which also appears in the New Testament, uh, is um, uh, it, it seems to be based on 
if not Philo's own writings, at least that kind of thought. I mean, he wasn't the only middle Platonist around, no doubt uh, not even the only Jewish one. Uh, so there's something going on there, but Paul, or whoever wrote 1 Corinthians, applies it to the resurrection. It, it, if he's rebutting Philo, however, that would, though that does kind of make sense in this verse, it does, it would seem to imply that he didn't believe in the pre-existence uh, of Christ, which the Philippians hymn in uh, Philippians uh, 2, 6 through 11, that does imply that uh, he was in the form of God, but thought not equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he was the heavenly Adam and didn't make the mistake the earthly Adam made. So uh, that's kind of uh, iffy there. So how how did Paul think that um, sin was transmitted from Adam to the whole stinking human race? Well, I now, you, you can't necessarily interpret Paul by Hebrews, which he didn't write, and uh, or you know, uh, at least wasn't written by the same person that wrote First Corinthians, who knows who wrote what. Uh, but uh, it seems to me that though Hebrews is also uh, very philonic sounding, very much so, it, when it actually talks about something like this, it, I know it's not quite on the same point, but when he's trying to um, link up Melchizedek and Christ, he says that... Um, Abraham was uh, paying tithes uh, to Melchizedek, which must mean that Melchizedek was a greater priest of a greater priesthood than Levi and the Levitical priesthood, because uh, in a sense, Levi, one of the tribal patriarchs, was already genetically, I mean, he couldn't use that word, but that's just a refinement of what the ancients had in mind. Uh, he was already present within um, Abraham, since he would be a descendant of his a uh, couple of generations down the line. And uh, my guess is that uh, that's the kind of thinking behind the statement uh, in um, First Corinthians, that the one man sinned, or Romans also, and uh, through him death entered the world. And, um, and uh, specifically, because all sinned, right? Now, th this is a bit of a mess, because uh, it sort of sounds in Romans like he's saying that death passed to all beca because all sinned, as Adam had, he set up the precedent. But uh, St. Augustine thought it meant the same sort of thing as in Hebrews, because um, keep in mind the original text had no punctuation, no space between letters even. And uh, so you could uh, translate that passage as uh, 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 because all sinned or in him all sinned. It's not the same word being translated differently. It's a matter of how you divide the letters up into <laughs> different words. So it's notoriously uh, difficult to tell uh, what the heck uh, Paul meant, though I tend to think he 
uh, wait a little more on the Pelagian side there, since he qualifies it, because all sinned. Now, of course, Catholics and Calvinists would raise the question, well, why? How did all sin? Uh, every subsequent human, doesn't that imply that they inherited some sort of tendency towards sin, and hence original sin? Well, maybe, maybe not. You know, Pelagius argued against Augustine that uh, there is no original sin in terms of an interior perversion of human nature, but rather that uh, the first humans created a culture, a society, a world system where the deck is stacked, the the uh, hurdles are high against anybody that would try to live sinlessly. Your options are restricted, and, and you're sort of stuck. There, there are no good uh, options anymore. So to get along in the world, which you have to do, you have to play by the rules and those are made by sinners and it's a it's a sinful game so yeah everybody does become a sinner uh, because of external influences though and Pelagius said the grace of God was his kindness uh, in uh, providing through Christ an alternate society to steal Augustine's terms. There was now a city of God as well as the city of man, and uh, the church would provide uh, a sin-free environment in which people could grow up with uh, good options. Uh, So you can't be sure Paul didn't have that in mind because he doesn't really develop it, right? I mean, we can uh, try to put the pieces together in a coherent System, but we don't know if uh, if Paul would have agreed with that. We don't know how he would have connected his own dots. So that's a bit of a problem. Uh, let's see. Now, as to saving the world by fix- fixing the corrupted existence in everyone, or just of those who uh, were Christian converts, uh, Saint Athanasius spoke about redemption in this. Uh, these terms, he said that salvation is really being delivered from mortality, which is the real stinger in sin. Sin makes you subject to death. And so what Christ did to save us was to take on a human mortal life, which is why he had to die, because everybody does. Genuine human beings are subject to death. And if he hadn't died, if he just said, well, so long, folks, and ascended into heaven like Professor Marvel at the end of uh, The Wizard of Oz, this would be a sham. It it wouldn't be a real human life. The same would be true if Jesus was incapable of being sick. Uh, And uh, and some have argued, like Edward Irving and Karl Barth, Jesus must have had a a sinful human nature, though he managed not to sin. Uh, That gets off into the weeds, I guess. But uh, he said what Christ does once he takes on mortality, once he, well, what he does is to transfer immortality through faith in the sacraments to those who believe. Uh, and and the divine nature of Christ begins to permeate them. This is sort of similar to the doctrine of the mystery religions. Once you were initiated, you had growing within you a kind of transformation of human nature uh, as 
Paul says, uh, into the glory body, the doxa body, uh, will be transformed into a body like his, uh, the doxa body. And um, Richard, well, I guess Richard uh, Reitzenstein, the great expert on uh, Hellenistic mystery religions, talks about this and how Paul's doctrine is really one with that of the mystery religions here. It's also similar to Tibetan Buddhism, which says that gradually through meditation, you start to form the Vajra body. Uh, whoops, just a sec. Uh, mm, yeah, the uh, Vajra, sorry about that. Uh, uh, somebody was standing at the door and knocking. There was something about an invitation to let him in and have supper, but I told him to get out because I was doing the Bible geek. Anyway, yeah, uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, the Vajra body, the diamond or adamantine body uh, within begins to form. And uh, once you're enlightened, you have this invulnerable, impassable, uh, immortal state. Uh, fascinating stuff, I'd say. Uh, so uh, that's kind of what uh, Athanasius said. God became man so that man might become God. Sort of an infection of salvation. Oh, let's see here, Andrew Lawson. Uh, what, which scholars propose a mid to late second century for the Gospels and Pauline letters? Could you recommend some books on the subject? Uh, there is a... Uh, well, um, let's see here. The Acts, uh, as a second century document, uh, Richard Pervo uh, wrote, or the late great Richard Pervo wrote a book on that called uh, Acts, uh, Dating Acts Between the Evangelists and the Apologists. And uh, I uh, edited a collection of uh, essays by W.C. Van Manen, V-A-N, uh, space M-A-N-E-N, -E uh, called A Wave of, of Hypercriticism. And it's most of his essays in, in, uh, in, translated into English. He wrote in Dutch and German. Uh, but the, the, well, no, actually, these he wrote in English. I'm sorry. Yeah, they're from, uh, most of them are from the Encyclopedia Biblica. Uh, he was the greatest exponent of the Dutch radical school that dated uh, all the Pauline epistles, late first, early second century, by various hands, none of them the historical Paul. Um, uh, Hermann Dettering, I think, sees the, uh, the New Testament documents is second century uh, in his book, The Fabricated Paul, which also exists in another form as The Falsified Paul. Uh, that's uh, that's another one that uh, uh, sees the Pauline letters as, as uh, pseudepigraphical. And in another article he's done, uh, the uh, Mark 13 as a document from the time of Bar Kokhba shows that uh, at least some of the Gospels must date from the second century. Uh, there's another one, I can't think of the man's name, got it somewhere, about Marcion and uh, the date of the Synoptic Gospels, and he places them in the second century. And uh, those would be uh, great books on it. I'm sure there are others more and more now. But a lot of scholars think that Acts is second century. Helmut Kester said that in his, uh, I guess, his uh, 
New Testament introduction, and uh, more and more Joseph Tyson. Uh, a lot of people uh, say that now, and uh, I'm certainly convinced of it. Okay, Charles Power is next. He says, the Gospels have varied attitudes toward the Samaritans. Mark doesn't even mention them. There's one mention in Matthew in which Jesus lumps them with the Gentiles, telling the apostles not to bother with them, but to concern themselves only with the lost sheep of the house of Israel, which is a curious way of putting it, since the Samaritans are the ones called Israel after the secession from the Davidic kingdom. According to Luke, um, rather than Jesus refusing to enter a Samaritan village, a Samaritan village refuses to receive Jesus, whatever that means. That's interesting. Uh, then the story takes a more positive turn with Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, which is why Samaritan is associated with hospitality rather than a Hebrew schism. Then of ten miraculously cured lepers, only one, a Samaritan, shows his gratitude. Finally, we come to John, the gospel known as most hostile to Jews, which tells of Jesus' negotiation with a Samaritan woman to draw a drink for him from a well. She instantaneously comes to revere him, and other villagers soon show their own respect, obviously in contrast to the miserable Jews who reject him. Finally, in Acts, despite the Jesus of Matthew telling the apostles to stay away from Samaritan villages, we find Peter and John spreading the good news specifically to Samaritan villages. All this is prologue to my observation that Jesus himself seems to be a sort of Samaritan. The Galilee of Jesus seems to be previously Samaritan territory, Israel as opposed to Judah, to use Bible nomenclature. And like the Samaritans, Jesus comes to resent the Jerusalem temple monopoly, which allows the Jerusalemites to lord it over those from outside, and which leads to financial exploitation of other Jews. Jews like the Galileans. Jesus attacks the money changers and vendors of sacrificial animals, no doubt thinking their charges scandalously high, not realizing that the rental of their spaces in the temple courtyard made it impossible to charge less. Did Jesus come to this resentment by himself, or might he have been influenced by Samaritans? How far were the Jews of Galilee from Samaritans in the first place? If Jesus did exist, was he that far from a Samaritan himself? Uh, let's see. Uh, this is interesting. Remember in the Gospel of John, in fact, uh, when Jesus uh, is making his enemies hot under the collar, they say, now, come on, aren't we correct that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? And then Jesus says, I'm no demoniac. He doesn't say I'm no Samaritan. Does that mean anything? Well, you can't be sure as with just about all these questions, but it might. Uh, and... Um, the brilliant, um, uh, excuse me, um, I'm confusing him already with another name. Uh, I've got Hermann Dettering in mind. It's no, no, it's, it's Stefan Hermann Huller, uh, who uh, has has got all kinds of fascinating, bold or wild, depending on your perspective, 
uh, theories. And in what I think was his first book manuscript, and I'm not sure if it's been published uh, or if it uh, is on his site somewhere, uh, it was called, I think, Jesus the Samaritan. And he uh, makes a case that Jesus was indeed a Samaritan and that he was therefore against the temple, but believed that uh, the temple sacrifices kept the world going. And what he was trying to do in his cleansing of the temple, which could easily be seen as an attack on the temple, uh, he was trying to interrupt those sacrifices and bring history to a crashing halt to bring on the eschaton, and which is not all that different from what Albert Schweitzer thought the uh, Jesus goal was to hasten the end and bring about the uh, redemption. Uh, so uh, it, it certainly is a viable theory, and. Um, Especially since, you, as you say, uh, Galilee is sort of in the twilight zone there. Uh, it, 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 is, it wasn't part of Judea. It was part of the northern kingdom. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, yeah, that's uh, not unlikely. Uh, though, of course, the Essenes were apparently a priestly group and therefore associated with the Jerusalem temple before the big schism with the Sadducees. And they boycotted the temple and uh, predicted that one day it would be replaced with a, a temple not made with hands descending from the heavens, rather like the New Jerusalem in the book of Revelation. But they um, would have expected that to also be in Jerusalem again, like Revelation, the New Jerusalem. Uh, but uh, that just goes to show that you wouldn't have to uh, be a Samaritan to be anti-temple. Uh, like you say, if the issue of the cleansing of the temple was the exploitation of the pilgrims, and we don't really know that, though it's not implausible at all, uh, then, you know, anybody could have... Uh, take an objection to that and uh but yeah it's it's certainly a viable possibility and you might want to check out uh stefan's um uh stefan huller's I, I like to throw his middle name in there because there is another stefan huller spelled slightly differently uh, H-O-E-L-L-E-R, who wrote books like uh, Jung and the, the, the Lost Gospels and stuff like that. Uh, it really great stuff. Uh, and and uh, Stefan Hermann Huller, H-U-L-L-E-R, is the, the one I'm talking about here. I don't happen to know the website, but I'm sure you could hunt him down pretty easily. And, um, and he might have, have it up there well worth looking at. I've got a copy of it someplace. All right. Uh, Elliot Mudd. I understand you do not believe in the historical Jesus. However, for the sake of the following argument, I would like to just assume that he did actually exist. As, and Elliot, as I admit, he might have, right? I'm not some sort of dogmatist on the point. He could have existed. Okay. I've recently been studying the 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel 9, which I do believe is dealing with Antiochus and was written about a 
160 BC. However, I was shocked to learn that the prophecy does not mathematically fit Antiochus, but uh, does appear to fit perfectly with the baptism of Jesus of Nazareth, somewhere between or about 27 to 29 AD. I've come to a possible answer, but would like to know if it's viable. If it is possible that Jesus and or his followers knew about the 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel and took it as a messianic prophecy and expected the Messiah around that time, see Luke 3.15, is it possible that they did? Uh, Yeah, I'm sure they would have known about it, yeah. Uh, If this is the case, it would explain why Jesus appears around the time he did. He would basically be making himself fit the prophecy. The prophecy, quote-unquote, would be almost self-fulfilled. Let me pause there. I first uh, read in... uh, a book called The History of Messianic Speculation in Israel, a really fascinating book by uh, uh, Abba Hillel Silver. Uh, it's uh, I think it was published by Shocken Books. I'm not sure, but uh, A History of Messianic Speculation in Israel by Silver. Uh, he says, yeah, uh, this probably explains why there were various uh, would-be messiahs around the time because they they had because the prophecy of Daniel had led people to believe, hey, we're living in that time. Uh, of course, it's a little difficult to uh, pin down the time because if I'm not mistaken, it starts the clock with the, the decree of the Persians to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And, uh, there are like two or three possible decrees or dates for the decree. So it's tough to pinpoint that. Okay, back to Elliot. He says, Once Jesus has claimed to be the Messiah and Son of Man, his death was as good as fixed, as this would be deemed blasphemy, and the death sentence would be almost certainly handed down eventually. Uh, I, I don't, let me pause again. I don't think that's the case. Uh, like with Simon Bar Kochba, about a hundred years later, uh, there were people like, uh, uh, Johanna Ben Zakai, who, no, or was it, uh, oh boy, no, no, uh, Rabbi Akiba, who said, yeah, he is the Messiah. Well, he even gained independence uh, for Judea for a brief period, uh, but then, you know, the Romans killed him, and that was that. Um, Akiba wasn't denounced as some sort of heretic, as, as no doubt he would have had people thought that Bar Kokhba was a blasphemer. He was a pious Jew. The question was, is he the Messiah? Uh, they must have realized somebody could think sincerely that he was the Messiah, but be wrong. Uh, and in fact, uh, Geza Vermesh, a great authority on the Dead Sea Scrolls, and author one of my favorite Jesus books, Jesus the Jew, uh, a really fascinating book. Um, he said that he thought perhaps the Jewish idea of a Messiah ben Joseph, a Messiah son of Joseph from, you know, from one of the tribes of Joseph Ephraim and Manasseh, but, but generally speaking, one from Israel in the north, he would, uh, fight against the Romans in the last days and 
be killed and his death would atone for the sins of Israel, which would sort of remove uh, a big uh, block against uh, their uh, redemption, uh, you know, their liberation. And, uh, and what, he, what his death would have done was to pave the way for the Messiah Ben David, a Judean Messiah descended from King David, to uh, beat the Romans. Well, uh, Vermesh suggests quite reasonably that... Um, the people that framed this doctrine were thinking of Bar Kokhba as the Messiah Ben Joseph. And that, yeah, he had died, but that didn't mean he wasn't the Messiah. He was the first of two messiahs. Uh, and uh, so uh, the fact that he did perish at the hands of the Romans, it had to happen to pave the way for the Messiah, son of David. Of course, this is exactly the same sort of thinking you had in uh, in Luke 24. Hey, don't you bozos realize that the Christ had to suffer and die and only then enter and into his glory, uh, and uh, so the same sort of making virtue of necessity. And uh, who knows, right? I mean, uh, some scholars have thought that the that the doctrine is older than that, uh, and uh, that uh, it was already current in the time of uh, Jesus, or the time of the Gospels, however you want to put it, and that that's how they, quote, knew, unquote, that Jesus' father was named Joseph, Right. Interesting. I mean, I can't decide between the two. I, I guess you'd have to have more evidence for it. Um, the doctrine of two messiahs certainly seems to predate uh, the Gospels and Jesus. Uh, you find it implicitly in Zechariah and Haggai, who seem to be nominating Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua as as messiahs. And... Um, uh, and the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and though they're notoriously equivocal on the point, seem to uh, picture a priestly and a royal messiah. But I don't think any of them speak of him as uh, Ben Joseph. But still, what the heck? Uh, could be. Could be. Okay, and finally, Elliot says, if this is the case, it would explain why Jesus seems to fulfill the 70 weeks and why he is cut off, quote-unquote, because of blasphemy. Apart from this, I can't see any other way uh, than assuming that Jesus actually fulfilled the prophecy and thereby validated his claim to be the Messiah. Uh, which I know you don't believe. Well, it's just that, uh, well, I, th I think you're right about uh, if there was a historical Jesus that he, like others, figured, well, now's the time. I, could it be me? Uh, and yeah, I, I guess so. And so um, th that would make sense. I don't think, though, that um, claiming to be the Messiah and being wrong would be blasphemy. I mean, the notion that claiming to be the Messiah is blasphemy, well, what would you do when the real Messiah came along and said uh, that he's the Messiah? Would you say, ah, claims to be the Messiah, stone him. You're never going to get a Messiah in that case. So, uh, and, and there's no record that that was considered blasphemy. So, anyway, good question. Thanks for it. Uh, let's see, let's see. Oh, um, who sent this? Ah, our buddy Slobodan Vukovic. Uh, let's see, 
from Serbia, I believe. Uh, what do you think of the family tomb of Jesus Christ? Uh, well, I uh, don't buy it, and uh, there are various reasons, but the biggie is that James Tabor um, believes that this uh, this tomb is that of uh, Jesus' family because the known names of family members in the Gospels, um, Simon, Judas, uh, James, and uh, Joseph's, uh, appear there, and Joseph and Mary. But uh, and he says, now what are the chances that that particular constellation of names occurred in in uh, more than one family of the time? I mean, they're, yes, they're all common names, but uh, f- from what we know of, and and we do have lots of you know names and who they belong to and the Mishnah and so forth. Uh, and given the population of, uh, uh, of the Holy Land at the time, he says it's almost got to be the family of Jesus. Well, my big problem with that uh, is, uh, number one, well, this has been said by others, uh, why would they be buried in Jerusalem uh, why not Galilee, where they lived? Yeah, I guess you could explain your way out of that. But my problem is this statistical argument breaks down, I think, uh, because these are not the only names. There are other ones uh, whom uh, um, Tabor and others say must be relatives by marriage, that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, and that's who Miriam is supposed to be beyond the, the one Mary. And uh, there's uh, people that might be the children of Jesus and uh, Mary Magdalene. Wait a minute, wait a minute. As soon as you add names that are not actually mentioned uh, as the family of Jesus in the sources, I think the statistical thing falls apart. Because if you're looking for this uh, constellation of names, putting them all in there, uh, they're even rarer because they don't appear in the New Testament as such, right, this group. So I I think it's just uh, highly speculative. And this has nothing to do with any prior belief of mine that there was no historical Jesus. There could have been, right? Uh, That's a different issue. But I, I don't see it. It seems to me highly unlikely. But that's not all there is to the tomb. And and uh, Slobodan goes on. What do you think of the frescoes of two fish on two ossuaries? Uh, I don't think that means much. Uh, I mean, it's a symbol of fertility. Uh, it was a Pythagorean symbol. Um it may mark the people as fishermen. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know that the ichthus symbol would uh, have been in use that early, but that's to me, that's sort of stretching it. What do you think of DNA analysis? I suppose at most, if you could get DNA, viable DNA off of these bone boxes, they might tell you how many of these people are related to one another, but that wouldn't peg it as Jesus' DNA, right? Uh, I guess you would need some kind of super relic with, uh, you know, the lance of Longinus with the blood of Jesus on it, which the legend uh, tells us about. Uh, 
What do you think of this sentence, which is located on the ossuary? Uh, here's a quote. Divine Jehovah or Yahweh, lift up, lift up. Or the divine Jehovah raises up from the dead. In either case, that of course, that would be a prayer for the future resurrection of the person buried there. In fact, I think there is a tomb inscription from Jerusalem from before 70 that says, Jesus, let him rise, which might be a prayer to Jesus, or it might mean uh, this is Jesus and may he rise from the dead one day. Okay, uh, uh, so... um, in itself, this is not this particular thing is not that important. I mean, if it's anybody's grave, this is a Jewish uh, hope for their resurrection. Uh, what do you think of the names? Oh, I'm sorry, I've already dealt with this. I jumped the gun. The, the names that are engraved on the ossuaries. Uh, here are quotes, uh, inscriptions on the ossuary. Uh, Mariam Kai Mara, uh, which is. is Mariam and Mara. Uh, uh, let's see. Yehuda bar Yesu. Uh, Yehuda bar Yeshua. Um, Judah, son of, of, of Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus. Uh, M-T-Y-H or Mattiah. A Levitical name, by the way. The next one, uh, Yeshua bar Yehosep, uh, Jesus, son of Joseph. Uh, Yoseh, Joseph, Maria, uh, Mary. Uh, so I, I again, I, I, none of these names is rare. It's a question of the exact combination, and there are other names in there, and it is gratuitous to say, well, they they uh, refer to unrelatives not named in the Gospels. They might. That's not unreasonable, but I think it does in the statistical argument. Gee, uh now, who's this one uh, from? Ah, Lachlan Christiante. And he saith, in a previous post, a podcast, if I remember correctly, you stated you had engaged in some fasting. Out of curiosity, how long did you go, and was it a clean fast, water only, or were you putting sugar into your system via juice fasting, quote-unquote? Uh, let me answer that before going on to the rest. This was back in the uh, mid-'80s, I guess. Uh, my wife and I fasted for uh, a week and uh, we uh, didn't eat anything. I I think I drank some diet soda, uh, some sort of uh, Fago chocolate soda, which is pretty wretched, but no sugar in that. I don't know if it makes any difference. But uh, other than that, just water. And we were astounded at how you would get over the initial hunger and could go day after day without eating anything. Uh, Then uh, some months later, we tried it again, but I began to feel sick and weak after the third day and called it off. I don't know what the difference was. 
was. Okay. Uh, I wonder because I've been unsuccessfully trying to make it to seven days for about a year. Despite my training and developing willpower, my stress levels eventually increase to the point where I just start eating after 30 to 50 hours. But in general, I stay ketogenic. Uh, for those unfamiliar with the ketogenic diet and lifestyle, it's a very low-carbohydrate diet where the majority of the calories, somewhere between 60 and 90%, come from fat. I track my level of ketosis through both a blood test with a glucometer once or twice a week and with a breath alcohol tester on a daily basis. The science of the breath test is that it, that inexpensive breathalyzers can't tell the difference between isopropanol and ethanol or any other molecule that ends with all. Ol. If I understand it correctly isopropanolol, I think I left out a syllable, is an intermediate in the breakdown of fatty acids into acetone, which is expelled through the breath. The ketogenic diet um, was somewhat popularized by the movie First Do No Harm with Meryl Streep, and it does wonders for epilepsy. It also does wonders for traumatic brain injury. See How to Feed a Brain by Caven Ballister, and uh, it does wonders for Alzheimer's syndrome. See Alzheimer's What If There Were Was a Cure by Mary Newport and The Alzheimer's Antidote by Amy Berger. And really, our, our sorts of brain stuff, but it doesn't just stop by making abnormal minds work better. It also makes normal minds work better. The mental clarity that comes from a ketogenic state is hard to describe, and I don't want to immediately compare it with gnosis simply because it rhymes with ketosis and would make a good poem. Still, I have to wonder how much of Gnostic awakening is the result of fasting-level ketones powering the brain, especially when that mental clarity seems to be saying that the needs of the flesh, of the body, are secondary to the needs of the spirit, of the mind. Plato was a fan of fasting, and early Christians seemed to adopt a good deal of Platonism into Christianity. I don't want to read too much into my own experiences with high levels of ketosis, but I find taking things literally can shed new meanings onto scriptures, and acetone can be detected by the unaided nose. It smells a bit like pears or like faint nail polish removal remover. Holy Spirit as sacred breath could mean acetone breath. Probably not, but possibly. What do you think? Um, well, I don't think it's used in such a way as to suggest that. Uh, it seems in the Bible to refer to the breath of God uh, that uh, breathes uh, life into Adam and, and so on. Uh, and uh, But interesting, you know, uh, in Eastern asceticism, well, I guess most asceticism that involves fasting, there is uh, an acknowledgment that um, that you are preparing 
Well, you're sensitizing the mind or the spirit by kind of getting the body out of the way uh, and uh, clear, clearing it up, clarifying the mind and all that. Uh, just as you say, I, I think in one sense, they're admitting a body-mind dualism and in another denying it. Uh, they're, they're in a sense, it's like Hatha yoga or breathing method yoga, where the mechanics of the breath uh, hopefully lead to enlightenment. Uh, so is it somatic or not? Well, it's kind of both. I guess you're turning the body from an impediment into an instrument. If that makes any sense. Uh, Kelly Reichert says, recently I heard Neil deGrasse Tyson speaking about religion, and he implied that scriptural literalism was the only viable option for individuals before the scientific revolution. They had no knowledge uh, from science, and their traditions and holy texts informed them. However, I've heard you and others claim that the biblical literalism that opposes science today really came into existence in the early 1900s. Some say the Genesis 1 passage was perceived by the ancients just to be a creation poem. It seems to me that it is naive to believe that the Pharisees of Jesus' day uh, would be open to creation ideas that opposed Genesis 1. What saith the geek? Well, I think that uh, um, that the, the, to say it's just a creation poem uh, is, um, is uh, um, another instance of allegorizing a text that you find embarrassing taken literally. I believe um, Julius Wellhausen was quite correct all those decades ago when he said look close at the Genesis 1 account, the priestly creation account, you'll see that it it's very much like that of the those of the Ionian philosophers, Thales and Aximander, all those guys, uh, who posited that uh, all the different types of, all the different categories of elements and animals and light versus darkness and all that, all these things came out of a centrifuge vortex uh, of disturbed uh, primal matter and that uh, the the inherent latent elements began to combine in different ways and uh, that's what you've got in Genesis in Hindu and uh, Jainist uh, cosmogenies they say that too that originally there was just this uh, field of matter a placid lake uh, and that it was disturbed by a rain of spiritual units, monads, uh, jivas, atmans, whatever, uh, falling into this matter and stirring it up, causing the the uh, latent elements to um, the three gunas in Hindu thought to uh, to combine in different ways, and uh, that's what led to the differentiated creation. And Gnosticism said something very similar. And th this was pre-scientific in, in one sense because there was no way to get data. Uh, but uh, they, um, 
it was what they used to call natural philosophy. Uh, you just did your best trying to think out what might have happened. And, of course, there was no way to test it. And these guys were scientists uh, 300 years or so uh, before Christ. Uh, they just hadn't any technology. And uh, it. Uh, he can, Wellhausen convinces me, it's pretty clear that this was uh, a, a Jewish priest's uh, theory of how the creation happened uh, and that he was reasoning it out. Of course, this is much later than even Wellhausen thought, but that only strengthens his argument. And it doesn't say, after all, thus saith the Lord, though it wouldn't matter if it had, because a whole lot of the apocalyptic literature was natural philosophy applied to astronomy. Uh, that uh, in the book of Enoch, where Enoch gets a tour of the heavens, he sees the storerooms of the snowflakes and the raindrops and the stars and so on. Well, this isn't a fairy tale. This is what somebody not having telescopes reasoned out must be the case. Uh, and it's wrong, of course, but that doesn't make those people stupid. Uh, even the overt myths they had were attempts to reason reason it out in the only way available. So I uh, I don't think of the of the ancients, at least civilized ones, as being a bunch of stupid savages. I mean, Empedocles and Anaximander weren't cavemen or something, uh, and uh, they knew about the atom uh, and and so on. Uh, they didn't know exactly what we know, but I would personally never think of such a thing. It, it's amazing to me, and these guys did. So um, uh, I think he's right uh, in that, uh, that, uh, yeah, this was, uh, they were literalists, but they uh, were literalists like DeGrasse, uh, what's his, Tyson himself is, in a sense. He's, he knows what science says now, uh, and it's, it's more to be relied on, but the ancients were relying on what they uh, understood as, as science, many of them. Some were, you know, just raw mythicists. That, that's true, too. But um, the thing with uh, the 19th century and all that, this brings up what Paul Tillich called naive versus reflexive literalism. He's drawn the same sort of distinction that Tyson does. Uh, and, uh, I mean, you got to trust Tyson because he, after all, was on TV explaining the reality of Superman, right? So, um, Tillich said that, just like Tyson, that yes, uh, no one questioned what we now regard as myth and so on. It was pre-scientific, if you're talking about our science. Um, and, uh, of course, most people didn't know how these ideas had been arrived at. For them, it was simply the teaching of Scripture, right? And they accepted it for that reason. Nowadays, uh, uh, when science has has debunked all of that, and again, I, I don't want to beat this drum uh, tiresomely, but when uh, when we have exploded these earlier theories, one might say, these earlier cosmologies and so on, uh, then uh, that's... Uh, 
That's what happened, uh, starting with Copernicus and so on, and then on into the 19th century with evolution and all that, and uh, a little before that, uh, geological uh, revolution. From there on in, you could you were at a crossroads. You could go with the old beliefs because Scripture said so, or you could say, "Well, I guess that was pre-modern. At least let's put it that way." Uh, and uh, the uh, Bible writers, had they known what we know, they wouldn't be uh, defending what they wrote. I mean, it seems clear to me that the priestly writer who was a speculative thinker, if if you could put him in a time machine and show him what we know and how we know it, it's, oh, to hell with what I said. Uh, this is great. Um, of course, we, we, we just have to speculate on that. But the, the reason people don't accept that is, of course, they're believing in a seven-day creation, etc., for a different reason than the priestly writer did. He just thought it out and figured this is probably what happened. Whereas the, the biblicist says, the Bible believes it. I said it. I mean, what is it? Uh, uh, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Jerry Falwell, uh, confronted with evidence for evolution said, I don't care what science says. I believe the Bible. Well, Tillich said the pre-modern people were naive literalists. They they didn't and couldn't know any better. Uh, but now, uh, if you in in modernity, you should know better. Yeah, I mean, we do know better. You should admit it, come what may. And if you won't, if you're stubborn, I'm hanging on to the Bible. That's reflexive literalism, and that's a different mental operation. Now you're an obscurantist. You don't want to know the truth, in effect. The ancients did, though they were mistaken about it. And so, yeah, they're very different uh, mental stances and operations, I think. And and then I, you know, I, I pity the theistic evolutionists and others that uh, Ed Suwoman and, and I uh, wrote about in... Um, our book, Evolving Out of Eden, uh, Christian Responses to Evolution, a great book, if I do say myself, and a lot of that is is Ed's doing, the guy's uh, scientific marvel. I mean, he's a, an inventor with loads of patents to his credit, and he's a very keen thinker about about these things. And, um, and what a book. I, I'm proud to say there is no other book like it, because we know the science, and we know the Bible, and most of these treatments fail at one or the other. Still in print from Ed's uh, intellectual press, the same outfit that uh, put out uh, the first volume of Holy Fable, though the second and the upcoming third are from Mind Vendor Books, uh, my and Carol's uh, publishing empire. Ah, let's see. This from William Weston in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. I've been in Hamilton. Uh, Clark Pinnock used to live there. Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, just a quick question for the venerable geek, eh? I was wondering if you could talk about the development of the publishing industry in the ancient world and its relation to religion. How were works published and distributed, and how did this vary by time and place? Well, uh, the guy to ask about this would be Richard Carrier, who knows everything about the ancient world. And just recently, I had the pleasure of hearing him explain some of it. 
uh, you uh, you did have libraries, free access libraries in major cities in uh, the in the Roman Empire. Though uh, not everybody consulted them, obviously, any more than they do the libraries today. There were book stalls also where you could buy books, but a lot fewer of those, and they were pretty expensive because it was very expensive to hire scribes and get them to copy because, of course, that's what you had to do, right? It was hand copying, and there's a lot of time invested in that and a lot of materials. Uh, there were um, longer and shorter lengths of scrolls. They were standard, the two standardized sizes. Mark was written on and fills uh, a standard short scroll. The other Gospels uh, were uh, written on more, on longer, more expensive scrolls. Uh, so you had to be e either wealthy or uh, have a wealthy patron who would uh, probably patronize, you know, as we still say, the the author of the book. Some think that Theophilus, uh, in, to whom Luke and Acts are dedicated, was the, the financial backer of, of Luke when he did his work, could be. And... Uh, uh, so you, you had to have a backer to uh, afford all the copying, too. Uh, and because, uh, again, right, that took a long time. Uh, materials were expensive. It might cost a thousand or thousands of dollars to get a book published, quote unquote. And I can't imagine we're talking a whole lot of copies. Uh, one often hears that there are thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament. True. Luckily, too. Uh, but uh, this is more than most books because, of course, these books were these the, the New Testament copies and the somewhat fewer Old Testament ones had to be done in um, pretty good numbers because the churches had to have copies. Individuals did not, which is pretty interesting. As Philip Davies points out, the biblical books, Old and New Testament, must have been written by scribes for scribes. I mean, there was no no possibility of of a general audience, really. Uh, you you were just right. It was like uh, uh, the uh, scholars' press of an arm of the uh, Society for Biblical Literature. These books are never going to wind up in uh, Barnes and Noble or something, right? That's they know there's uh, or University Press of America. They know that a lot of scholarly work will be of no interest to the common audience, and why should they be? Uh, so they're just publishing them, and sometimes at a pretty high price uh, for the the small number of scholars in the field uh, in which the uh, the book is written. Uh, so uh, it, it, these are similar problems to those that uh, affected book publishing in the ancient world. Uh, somewhere in the late first or the second century, 
they uh, somebody invented the codex, uh, in other words, a bound volume uh, where um, you cut up a scroll pretty much and into individual pages and glued them together on one side. Uh, and um, some think Christians were the first to do that. I don't know how you would determine that, but it might well be. Uh, that's about all I know about it. Uh, um, I'm sure there are good books on this, but the, I just have the broadest outline uh, in my head. So uh, uh hope that helps. Uh, Andrew Lawson again. He says, could you comment on the gospel writer's tendency to shuffle the narrative context and chronology around certain sayings? For example, take the cure of a leper in you know what are there any cures in the gospel of uh of lepers who were deaf because that would be a scriptural precedent for that rock group anyway uh in mark's version Mark 1.40, Jesus is going through Galilean synagogues casting out demons when a leper appears asking to be healed. Then in Matthew 8.1, we get the same scenario and dialogue, but in a different location. This time, Jesus has just finished the Sermon on the Mount and is coming down the mountain when our leper appears. Luke tells the same story, but has shuffled the location once more. This time, Luke 5.12, Jesus is in one of the cities of Galilee when the leper appears. Are the gospel authors relying on a sayings collection like Q and creating narrative structures as they go? Uh, this technique is repeated countless times throughout the gospels with dozens of sayings and episodes being repeated in the synoptics and all of them in different locations and times in Jesus' ministry. It suggests to me that the authors knew nothing about the life and deeds of Jesus, only his sayings. Now that's, you, you've, uh, highlighted this in a very interesting way. Uh, this is, uh, one of the very first published insights about form criticism. Carl Ludwig Schmidt uh, was um, one of the pioneers, along with Rudolf Bultmann and Martin de Balius, of form criticism. I think Vincent Taylor, also a great form critic, uh, came along a little bit later, um, uh, as did uh, Dennis Nynam. Uh, but they're all great uh, form critics. And um, Schmid was the first to point this out, you know, in print. I'm sure others have noticed it. He said that it's obvious from this that the gospel material, at least in the synoptics, was passed down anecdote by anecdote. Different anecdotes, according to their form, serve different purposes. Some led up to a punchline where Jesus basically decrees a law for the Christian community. Um, others sum up the what somebody thought was the point of Jesus' mission, uh, sayings like, I came to do so and so. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost, and so on. Um, And there are miracle stories to uh, impress outsiders with the power of the Savior. There are uh, uh, apocalyptic sayings and and so on and so on. 
And um, the thing that, well, of course, there's an an internal consideration here, the factor of form itself, like miracle stories have certain points, most of which are going to be supplied usually even in the same order, whether he's feeding the 5,000, stilling the storm, um, healing somebody, like there's the stage setting, there's the case history of the severity of the problem Jesus is going to address, and then there's some statement of intention that, don't worry, I'll handle this. Uh, There's some gesture or word, uh, come out of him and don't enter him again, and so on. Then uh, it states that the miracle miracle happened. Like uh, she rose up from the sick bed, whatever uh, the, the blind man saw. And then there is some tangible evidence that it happened. And then there's the acclaim of the crowd. Often there's the skepticism of the bystanders after the statement of intent. Oh, don't worry, I'll take care of this. What are you talking about? She's dead. You can't do anything. Or uh, why don't you feed the crowd? Us feed this this mob? Where are we going to get the money for that? Etc. You go ahead, do what I say, you'll see. Uh, that's a fairly common element. Not every one of them appears in every story, but this is the general paradigm skeleton of a miracle story. It has a certain form to it. And so with the others, perhaps less obviously, but it's there. And uh, so the internal structure of it implies that these were self-sufficient units of oral tradition before they were written down, though, as Gerd uh, Tyson points out, uh, the same sort of changes uh, to the stories that accumulated during oral transmission continue to happen as they're rewritten from written sources, like Matthew and Luke using Mark, for instance. No wonder they change this or that. Um, But the external thing that that gives the game away is that, yeah, as you point out, the, the, the linkage is very different. What happens in what order? Uh, And that's got to show that the evangelist didn't really even care about the order. Uh, They're just stringing the episodes and the sayings together, sometimes topically. When you look at Mark 9 and 10, there's a bunch of sayings that uh, if you really heard Jesus say them back to back, uh, would sound like schizophrenic verbal salad. Uh, What's the master talking about? I can't follow it, right? But uh, that's because Mark has gathered them topically, or actually not either topically or by catchword. Uh, there's a few sayings that have to do with salt, but there's no common theme. Uh, the name, children, various things that link a few sayings together. Uh, but uh, sometimes the narrative, when he went here and did that, he went there and did this, uh, that's artificial just to provide a, a, a principle of connection. Uh, they didn't really care. It didn't matter much. And this kind of, this realization doomed uh, the uh, earlier scholarly attempts to reconstruct the sequence of events in the, the ministry of Jesus. For instance, uh, Oscar Holtzman and all those earlier pre-Schweitzer guys, 
said, well, it looks like Jesus had an early period of popular success in Galilee, but then uh, the crowd began to turn against him, especially when he went to Jerusalem and so on. That that was a mistake, as Schweitzer uh, – well, no, Schweitzer did kind of believe that. Yeah, I'm sorry, but uh, he um, – well, let's just say before the form critics, yeah. Uh, once uh, Schmidt had written, it became obvious that this was arbitrary. It was just fortuitous that it happened to be grouped this way. Uh, and it really didn't reflect any order of events. And this this didn't necessarily devalue the contents of the stories, even historically. Like, this alone wouldn't do that. Uh, it, it didn't mean that Jesus didn't do any of these things or say any of these things. It's just that nobody bothered keeping straight when. I mean, really, how much difference does that make? And then when uh, the evangelist decided to put them into a narrative context, they kind of had to come up with some sequence, and uh, they, it was... Uh, negligible. Uh, the, the one evangelist knew he was changed in the order of the previous one, but it really didn't make any difference in either case. So, you know, why not do it differently? Uh, a very obvious case of that is Matthew, uh, because he has restructured everything to um, have five great blocks of of discourse because he wants it to be he wants Jesus to be a new Moses and he wants the the uh, his gospel to be a new Torah and so we've got a birth narrative and some other stuff the baptism and then uh, chapter five through chapter seven we've got the Sermon on the Mount Luke has the Sermon on the Plain. Q probably didn't specify a location, but um, it's uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew because he wants you to think of Mount Sinai, right? Uh, and uh, then we've got some more. We've got some more stories. And then we come up to chapter 10, the mission charge. Uh, that was a form of that was already in Mark, but he elaborates it a bit. Uh, and uh, this reminds me of the earlier question about the Samaritans. It sort of shows that Matthew got his version of it from a community that didn't expect to evangelize Samaritans because the end was coming so soon there wouldn't be time. Uh, and when uh, the evangelist Matthew put this in, it didn't—he didn't notice the problem he was creating there. Um, but at any rate. Um, uh, let's see. So then we got some more stories, and then chapter 13, the parable chapter. Well, he saw that Mark in chapter 4 had a parable chapter. He liked the idea, but added a whole lot of stuff, much of it of his own creation. Okay, then uh, as of 14, we have some more stories. And uh, then in chapters 18 and 19, we have a church order section, uh, what I like to call Matthew's Manual of Discipline, because it's the same sort of thing we have in the Dead Sea Scroll called the Manual of Discipline. It even sounds like it came from a sectarian community with the, the brethren there and the different levels of penalty for uh, different levels of insulting speech between the brethren and all that stuff, very much like the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
Well, uh, then uh, chapter 20, we're back to stories, and in chapter 23, we have the uh, vilification and denunciation of, of the Pharisees and scribes and so on. Woe unto you. Now, I must have gotten a lot of that from Q, because Luke has uh, most, uh, about half of the same material, but Matthew has added more. And then without a break, I mean, really, to fit uh, the pattern in one way, he should have had some more narrative before he launches into the apocalyptic material in chapters 24 and 25, um, which is based on Mark 13, but adding a lot of material. Why didn't he do it? I mean, why did he have the denunciation of the Pharisees and then immediately uh, the the apocalyptic discourse? Well, for a simple reason, that would make uh, a hexateuch. Uh, and he wanted a Pentateuch. He wanted a five-book um, sequence. So he had to cram two different <laughs> um, uh, topics together in the last one. And then we're back to uh, to narrative. Uh, and, and so to do that, obviously, he's going to be uh, uh, chopping up the, the different stories from Mark and the sayings from Q and, and uh, filling them in around the five discourses. And there, there are other examples that could be given, but that's really a glaring one. Um, uh, one more and I'll get out of here. This is from Nick, who points out he is not very old and definitely not a saint. So it's neither the devil nor Santa Claus that's writing, but Nick nonetheless. Uh, many of the world's mythologies include stories about the world ending or renewing in some kind of last battle. So does the New Testament. But do we have any idea where the New Testament notion of Armageddon comes from? Is this a rewrite of something found in the Old Testament, or perhaps a greatly expanded reimagining of some Old Testament verses barely hinting at the doomsday, or a borrowing from some other culture, or just a very Variation on an archetypal theme with no discernible roots anywhere outside of the author's mind. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Well, there are two big theories about uh, where this came from. One is in Norman Cohn, C-O-H-N, uh, his book, um, oh boy, what is it? I've got it right over there. Uh, uh, Cosmos, Chaos, and the world to come from Yale University Press. He traces the elements of the apocalyptic notion from uh, way back in, in Babylon uh, and Egypt on through culture by culture to, uh, to Judaism and the New Testament. Uh, it's very old themes percolating down through the ages. The Antichrist um, symbolized as a being with multiple heads like Leviathan in the book of Revelation. That goes way back uh, to uh, Assyria and Babylon and so on. Um, oh, uh, and he goes into various linkages. It's amazingly interesting. There's a different approach taken by um, Paul Hansen in a book called The Dawn of Apocalyptic, where he pretty much sticks to um, comparing the approaches of 
uh, Old Testament uh, Israelite priests versus prophets and uh, how you had a kind of a bouncing back and forth between a cyclical view of history, uh, which was connected with the sacred king myth, uh, that every time a new king came to the throne and within that, every new year, you would have a ritual reenactment of the primordial battle between Yahweh and Leviathan, uh, issuing in uh, Yahweh becoming king of the gods and the world being created from the remains of the dragons. And uh, so that the world's stability would would continue uninterrupted. Um, But then you had the perspective of the Deuteronomists and the prophets that said, no, history is linear. Uh, God uh, intervenes in history on behalf of the righteous, and um, he topples the world empires, and soon there will be a reckoning uh, among the nations when uh, God uh, evens up the scores and all that. Because there are, in in, uh, Isaiah and uh, I think Joel and others, apparent anticipations of a world-destroying apocalypse. And um, there's a whole book called When Prophecy Failed, a little play on the socio-psychologist's book, uh, uh, Stanley Schachter, uh, I can't think of the other guy's names offhand, but When Prophecy Fails, uh, present tense, about a flying saucer cult and how it predicted the end of the world and when it didn't happen, how they rationalized it. Well, this uh, Old Testament scholar's name I can't quite recall, but I deal with it in my book, um, The Paperback Apocalypse. He shows how there's several of these uh, backpedaling uh, uh, things in uh, in the Old Testament already, and uh, oh yeah, it's been delayed, but keep waiting, keep watching this, keep watching the skies, and all that. Uh, and uh, so, uh, different groups would hold to the cyclical versus the linear view, uh, depending on who was in power or or out of it at the time. Uh, we're going to get lost in the weeds here if I keep it up, but. Both of these books are very fascinating. Whether their theories are compatible or not, I don't know. I suspect they are, but they're both worth a look. Uh, And uh, uh, let's see. I think I'm forgetting part of your question. I guess, uh, yeah, well, Armageddon is based on the Old Testament. There's all the stuff about the Valley of Decision. Armageddon is the... uh, uh, the is the area around Megiddo, the plain of Jezreel, a uh, site of many, many battles. And I guess I figured, well, the last battle would uh, uh, really be the uh, wind-up of history. Uh, it is uh, it, usually people, scholars have uh, distinguished between eschatology and apocalyptic. Uh, eschatology means the study of the last things, or the idea of the last things. Eschatos, last, and ology, and logos, the matter, or the thought about the the last things. Uh, an apocalyptic from uh, 
uh, apokaluo, to unveil, to lift back the veil, literally. Uh, so a revelation of what is to come. Now, those two words don't tell the whole tale. The etymology doesn't. Um, but the difference was eschatology deals with, at least when you talk in corporate eschatology, what will happen to the world, to the human race as a whole. This was thought to be a mark of the Old Testament prophets who generally had this linear idea that history would go on. Uh, God would punish uh, his people when they were sinning, but reward them when they were righteous. And, and when they were righteous enough, he would deliver them from their foreign oppressors. And it looked forward to that, but it, it, the, the, um, this eschatology was open-ended. You, you wouldn't, things weren't settled. I mean, it could go either way, depending on whether Israel was repentant, etc. Whereas apocalyptic was believed to be more influenced by Zoroastrianism, which had a deterministic timetable for history. Uh, it was all set up in advance. Uh, it was a contest between Ahura Mazda, the wise lord and uh, or the lord of light, and uh, on the other hand, Ahriman, who was an evil anti-god, the lord of uh, darkness. And uh, for a period of 12,000 years, this conflict would be going until the descendant of Zoroaster, the Seoshians, or the benefactor, would come to uh, raise the dead to face the final judgment, and so on and so on. And this obviously contributed the main ideas of apocalyptic. Now, in itself, this is what Cohn shows developed throughout the whole ancient Near East. Uh, and But Zoroastrianism was probably the great flowering of it, and then it passed on. It was inherited by Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Okay, um, uh, apocalyptic, therefore, the end was set at some point. And, of course, different seers thought they knew when it would be and made these embarrassing predictions and so on. But it was just a question of time. What was uncertain was how you as an individual would fare in the final judgment. Hence, in the Gospels, uh, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the news. Uh, yeah, so there's uh, it, your fate is up for grabs, but that of the world is not. Uh, finally, God's righteous, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and so on. Uh, in uh, recent uh, decades, I guess, people have real scholars have realized these are sort of ideal types. It's like talking about religion versus magic. Actually, there is overlap. It's sometimes hard to tell which one you're dealing with. Maybe both at the same time, maybe half and half. Well, in the same way, a close scrutiny of the of the prophets indicates that, yeah, they do have this, let's see what's going to happen. Uh, God delivers ultimatums implying you can repent and it won't happen. Um, though often, as in Ezekiel and Isaiah, it's pretty pessimistic. I know they're not going to repent, but at least they can't say they weren't warned. But sometimes, yeah, you, you could avert the disaster. And it might be a short-term one, uh, oppressors conquering Israel, whatever. But uh, occasionally, as I said a moment ago, you do have 
anticipations of a final catastrophe, especially in the Isaiah apocalypse uh, around chapter 26 of Isaiah. Uh, the earth will reel like a drunken man and fall to rise no more, etc. Whoo, boy, pretty rough stuff. And so there's... Uh, Sometimes they sound kind of apocalyptic, but yeah, it is worth differentiating the two basic models. Uh, and um, and I, I think apocalyptic really floods into Judaism and then into Christianity from Zoroastrianism. I, as I uh, explain in Holy Fable, Volume 1, I go along with those scholars that say what we know as Orthodox Judaism, which evolved from rabbinic and before that Pharisaic Judaism, was really created by the Persians when they sent Ezra, Nehemiah, whoever, uh, to to reorganize Judaism after the Babylonian exile. They were imposing, basically— a domesticated Zoroastrianism, which is why the the group that accepted it was known as the Pharisees, as uh, T.W. Manson pointed out, which uh, must have meant originally the Parsis or Persians or Zoroastrians, who had all these doctrines of resurrection from the dead and, and uh, Satan and so forth, that the Sadducees say, you know, what the heck are you talking about? This isn't Judaism. You're a bunch of Zoroastrians, you're Parsis, Pharisees. And uh, and then, of course, other strains of Judaism did live for a while alongside of it, but once the temple was destroyed, really you had uh, the many different Jewish sects kind of wiped out, and, uh, and the, the Pharisee-influenced one was all that was left. So there is a huge uh, debt to Zoroastrianism in the Bible. Well, that's it for today. I hope to be back a little sooner than I was this time for another exciting episode of The, uh, the Bible Geek. And in the meantime, if you just can't get enough of my rantings. Why don't you read some of them in the newly published Holy Fable Volume 2, available on Amazon for about 20 bucks, uh, about the Gospels and Acts. You'll love it, I tell you. So we'll see you later. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.